Tonight, we hear a parable from Jesus, the story of the Good Samaritan. There may be no other concept or phrase from the Bible that has so transcended its context. People who have never heard of the ancient region of Samaria know that a Samaritan is one person who helps another, a do-gooder. It is the namesake of hospitals and charities and even our own clothing ministry here at St. James, the Samaritan's Closet. Jesus' story for us tonight is both touching and familiar, domesticated, with a meaning that couldn't be more clear. A man going along the road falls into the hands of robbers, a priest and then a Levite seeing him, suffering, walk by. And then a Samaritan stops, puts him on his donkey and helps him get on his way. So we ought to be the people showing mercy to those less fortunate. And the question is, who can we help? The biblical scholar Amy Jill Levine in her writing on this parable describes how she heard it told in Sierra Leone in the 1970s in the years of political unrest following their independence. One of her companions interpreted the parable as proclaiming that one should take aid from whoever would offer it, even the enemy. And thus Jesus gave permission for his country's acceptance of aid from the Soviet Union. Perhaps not quite Jesus's original intent, but an essential spin for those of us who live in comfort and command financial and social capital. As easily as some people can identify with any of the subsequent travelers on the roadside, free to help this wounded man or free to choose to turn away, there are those who more easily identify with the man in the ditch. And so the question becomes for them, who will help me? Those of you familiar with this parable may have heard interpretations that the priest and the Levite are not free to help the wounded man. They are restrained in some way, held back by Jewish laws of purity, for example. That's just not so. There are no ritual laws of purity that forbid helping someone in need. The priest and the Levite are not only free to help, but compelled by Jewish law to help. The responsibility to save a life is paramount in Judaism and overrides every other law, even observance of the Sabbath. So there is no good religious reason for their inaction. Martin Luther King Jr. preached famously on this parable in his last speech, the night before his death. After running through the possible obligations that compelled these men to pass on by, King said it was fear more than anything else that sent the priest and the Levite to the other side of the road. Perhaps the robbers were still about. Perhaps this was a trick meant to snare them in. In King's words, the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Whether we feel most akin to those with the power to help or the one who is powerless, we are meant to see that it's just not all about us. Both our lives together and our life of faith 
is not first and foremost about what we want. It is about our community, as widely as we can cast that net. When we live in fear, when we turn away, all of us suffer. Our view narrows and the light dims. Whether we are helped or we are the helpers, we're all neighbors. That's all well and good, of course. In theory, kindly, kindliness, neighborliness, they warm the heart. And this is where the familiarity of the parable can be a bit pernicious. That we all know the story of the Good Samaritan, have adopted that language as our own, it defangs it. We've removed the glass from the window panes, lest Jesus shatter them open. Because Jesus chose a Samaritan to shock and appall his listeners, he meant for them to be scandalized. By the time Jesus told this story, Jews and Samaritans had been enemies for centuries. They disagreed about everything that mattered, practiced their faith in separate temples, read different versions of the Torah, crossed the street when they saw one another coming. The hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was, the Samaritans was blood deep. So too often when we tell this story, we make it about helping the least of these, using our power to help those who are powerless. And that is good, we ought to do that, we must. But the example of a Samaritan is not powerless. Jesus means an enemy, a fellow human being who if you met on equal footing could hurt you just as much as you likely could hurt them. If King chose to retell this story whole cloth, it could be a Klansman pulling over his car on the way to Selma to help a black person wounded on the side of the road. I have found myself musing this week, who is my Samaritan? Who would I be shocked, incredulous, even offended to hear a story about their kindness? Can I hear God speaking when it is about someone that I hate? That I need to love my neighbor, the CEO who pays no taxes, or my neighbors, the cops who shot Jalen Walker? I can't give another example, not because there isn't one, but because it can feel so personal, so ugly, and it hurts to think about people who we despise. And I simply cannot imagine someone that I despise helping me. So I ask you, who is your Samaritan? Whose kindness could you accept only if you were too defenseless to refuse their help? Remember the lawyer in the story, he cannot even say the Samaritan. The Samaritan was the neighbor. He can only say the one who showed mercy. Perhaps re-examining the lawyer is a good place to stop this evening. Jesus often has unfriendly interlocutors, people deliberately trying to catch him out or test him with trick questions. Reimagining this lawyer as my neighbor, I can hear the question below the snide intent. This man may be testing Jesus, but he is asking a question that is both earnest and bold. He is asking about the whole matter and purpose of life itself. How are we meant to live? 
What must I do to inherit eternal life, life with God, life in the kingdom? The commentator I love, Debbie Thomas, says this question shows a desire to live fully and intentionally. She says this man doesn't want to mess around in the shallows with his remaining years on earth, doesn't want to mess around in the shallows. He wants to deep sea dive. I love that image, deep sea diving with Jesus. Because that is what I want, I think. That's the kind of faith that I long for and that maybe I have on my best days, to face God with openness and curiosity, even when he shocks me, even when I feel hurt by the people that I don't like whom Jesus bids me to love, even when practicing God's justice feels like a painful burden, to still face God with openness and curiosity, asking him to take me to the depths, to show me what is good. Eternal life is life eternal, not just in length, but depth and breadth and fullness and meaning. Jesus, show us what is good. Take us to the depths. But there is no way out of the shallows and into those depths where we do not encounter a neighbor. There is no way out where we do not encounter a stranger. There is no way into God's depths where we do not first encounter an enemy. There is no way to swim past them, no depth where we don't encounter other people, no eternal life that respects the contours of our social preferences, our personal likes and dislikes and bigotries and national borders. There is no eternal life like that. Only an eternal death could leave us unbothered and undisturbed. But eternal life, the cool, deep waters bathed in God's presence. We can only swim there side by side.